Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. There were misconceptions that I was really from this world, and I'm really not. Do you think the industry was indulging your ego? Oh, for sure. Did you realize things were starting to go off the rails? I could see the reviews changing. At the time when the reviews changed, the clothing started selling more. It was confusing. Fashion in New York had moved on, and I didn't know where my place in there was. How did you muster the courage to keep going? Well, I didn't have a choice. I think I had a lot of responsibility for the people that did work for me in my sample room. And in the filmmaking process, although incredibly risky, was, was what I like take away from it. a form of therapy. It was a form of therapy. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to Inside Fashion on the BOF podcast. This week, I'm in New York, where the entire fashion industry has descended for the latest season of fashion shows that will take us from New York to London to Milan to Paris. But this week, I'm sitting down with someone who's decided to step outside the Fashion Week circus. Once upon a time, Zach Posen had some of the biggest, hardest to get into shows at New York Fashion Week. I know that from personal experience. Zach was one of New York's biggest stars. But as sometimes happens in the fashion industry, a star that was once quickly rising started to fall. And Zach went through some very, very challenging periods, both personally and professionally. This was all very honestly portrayed in the documentary House of Z, which I recently watched on Netflix. And I thought it might be nice to sit down with Zach to hear in his own words what it was like to go through those challenges, and also to understand his decision about doing the documentary and sharing those ups and downs with the world. So without further ado, here's Zach Posen, Inside Fashion. 
Good afternoon, Zach Posen. Hi. Thank you for having me here in your uh, studio. Thank you for coming. First few days of Fashion Week in New York. Exactly, and I'm already here installed in your office. Tell me about that painting. That's a painting of a friend of mine. It's uh, named Lola Schnabel, and she painted it probably in her first year at art school, and it's of the catacombs in Sicily. Okay. And uh, that's a bit creepy. It is creepy, but. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a paint. I love the colors in the painting, and it's traveled with me from my original uh, studio in Tribeca to here. Right. And it's it's nice, uh, you know, to have uh, paintings and textures and colors. I don't know that that I like and feel close and personal. And I think at one point her father told her just to cut out the little child skeleton in oh, no. it, and and you know, scrap the rest. But I, I kept it whole. Well, from Tribeca to here has actually been a really interesting journey. Yes. And um, what, what kind of sparked me to get in touch with you was um, I was having one of those late nights looking for something to watch on Netflix, and I came across The House of Z. And I thought, well, that might be fun to watch. And I watched it, and I was completely taken with it because I find that so much of what the way fashion is portrayed in media and in films and in television is as this kind of perfect glossy world. And you know, your journey and what you revealed and shared in that film was, you know, I thought that was incredible. And so I do want to talk about the movie, of course, but I, I actually just want to start a little bit before that and kind of just get a sense of, for those people listening who might not know much about you, like, how, how did you get into fashion in the first place? Wow. Uh, how did I get into fashion? Uh, well, I mean, I started my company at 21, but I actually really had my first job in fashion when my mom said, no, you know, time to get a summer job. And I said, well, maybe I want to work in fashion. I was always interested in costume and style and construction. Uh, my father's a painter, so I think it really starts there. I grew up in a very creative household on Spring Street, and my father's paintings were as it were paintings that were kind of uh, high realism, but using cloth. Mm-hmm. So there was fabric and there was draping in my household growing up, and uh, so it started there. My mom said, "Get a summer job." And I think, you know, I knew somebody, or my mom knew somebody that knew Nicole Miller, New York designer, and that was my first internship. And And did you know right away that this was what you wanted to do? Once I hit, like, once I hit the garment district and hit, at that time, it was still a city within a city and a real community, it, it really hit. And I was, like, on tunnel vision. I mean... You were home. I was home. I was with my people. I liked the speed of it. I liked the sample room, uh, the process, my first time I ever worked on putting a fashion show together. And, uh, you know, we were kind of small as an organization, so I was kind of a liaison in between and given to the person who produces the show, and it was kind of a legend, a guy named Kevin Cryer. And Kevin, uh, you know, said, here's how you book a model, and put me on the phone and handed it so to me. So you really learned the whole craft of the business, like just by... I remember sitting there and watching, they were walking around, uh, the guy, the president of the company, Bud Cohen, 
Bud Koheim, I think. Yeah. Yeah. He was walking around, and he was walking around probably like Japanese business people. And I asked, like, are you going to open up stores there? And they explained at that time that it was a franchise. And so then I was trying to understand that concept. But I, I learned business by selling lemonade. Right. That was what my so, mom, profit margin was lemonade on Spring Street, which was like the greatest place to sell lemonade. And, you know, and a lot of my seed money that I started my company with was like saved up from years of selling lemonade on Spring Street, wow. you know, in the 80s. It was high traffic. So let's talk about how you started your company. Sure. Because in a way, it was, it was kind of an accident, right? Like it, 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 yeah, it, I, I wanted to work for people. Right. I mean, I had two people I wanted to work for. So, you know, long story short, to get to the place of starting, I uh, interned there. Then I started working at the Costume Institute at the Met. And they accepted me when I was about 16. And I really got my fashion history there and started to interact with designers, bought my first staff ticket to a Met Gala. I don't think that's even allowed anymore. No, I do not think it is. <laughs> and there was a party afterwards, and I think it was like $60, and I like it was a big deal and made my outfit, and it was just a different experience, right? And, and then uh, worked at a company called Toka and worked on candle development for them, and the idea of tuberose as a scent, which wasn't really a thing yet, was something I remember we worked on. And, and then I moved to London. I got accepted to go to Central St. Martins, and I skipped a year of college. I didn't Did you know what St. Martins was? When yeah. You, why? Because 96, 97 was the height of John Galliano right. and Alexander McQueen and the beginning of Hussein Chalayan and being in the Costume Institute with Richard Martin and the head of the library, a woman named Deirdre, uh, was such an exciting time in fashion. Like we knew that fashion kind of was changing. Uh, the Dreamers were back. Terry Mugler had just done like his big anniversary show. Like fantasy elaboration or illusions of grandeur of deep fantasy were being allowed as the foundation for what then became the building blocks of major luxury houses and you know the big the big companies what was it like when you got to st martin's terrifying were you on charing cross road i was on charing cross road uh you know it was a incredible experience i was very young how old were you I must have been just 17 turning 18. Okay. And I was skip foundation year. And what I wasn't aware of was that a lot of people reapply that have master degrees from all these other places around the world to reapply to kind of launch their career. Uh, it is highly, it was highly competitive. In a good way or a bad way? In an amazing preparatory way for this industry. Right. But at the time, uh, you know, I think it, I, I, I kind of thrived off of it. I enjoyed it, but it was scary. Uh, you know, grades were all like graded on the curve and posted and never taken down, basically like onto the street. And pretty much everybody would fail every, you'd get failed no matter what, like half your class, uh, not by not doing the work, just by very tough critiques. And, uh, it was just, you know, it was highly creative. I had an amazing tutor named Howard Tangay. I know Howard. Yeah, and Howard, uh, you know, I think I had, I had this idea of like self-creation of how I looked myself and he kind of spotted me and, 
he took me under his wing. You know, he picks people I think that he really would focus on. And he was in, I think because of that, he was even more tough on me. And really, but he really watched and he was really my person in that experience there and probably wanted to push me more than I was pushing myself. But what I did is I immediately found the pattern making teachers. There were two incredible pattern making teachers there. And I kind of understood that they had been people that had done the original block patterns for some of you know, the greatest creators of our time. And I remember. So there was institutional knowledge in those pattern makers. I just wanted to work with them. It was like yeah. I realized it was like we got our first assignment, which is called the White Project. I know that project. And it's a famous like yeah. ritual. Ritual. And I was really I don't you know interested in ideas of white and purity, white and innocence, uh, loss of innocence, uh, different symbolisms, and I kind of made this like white knight outfit. And I remember I spent a week on a sleeve pattern. I kind of wanted to capture a Velasquez armor in felt, which was like unbearable the to work with. Fabric, yeah. Just a mess, but you could mold it. You know, it's kind of molding and darts, but I kind of dissected this thing and it looked like a lobster skeleton. And then like the other pattern making teacher I remember came and they kind of assigned me a sewer because there are sewers there to figure out how to actually sew this piece. And that was kind of the beginning and, and those were the people that I felt really strongly related to. My class was highly competitive. I also had... Who else was in your class? Anyone we would know? Probably people that are all working, but not people that have brought their own brands. I mean, yeah. but, you know, there was uh, an amazing creature of a girl working there uh, named Natalie. And Natalie, you know... Oh, with the red hair? Uh, Natalie Ratabousi. Okay. I'll give you the spelling of her name. She's Italian. Yeah. And she's like one of the major guns to hire. I mean, oh, she's right. been at made she was at Gucci doing evening. She was the head of Ralph. You know, and anywhere she is, it looks amazing. Right. And she was the one who I wanted to like assist for their final collection. Okay. I just knew it, and they were really mean to her. Everybody was really mean, and she was totally beaten down. I was like, please don't worry. You're gonna. I just know it. You're gonna be all just fine. Her, she could draw like a like I've never seen somebody draw. Uh, I had a blast. I think, uh, you know, academically, you know, it's not the most academic school. So that was different. There aren't classes. It's like project, check-in, critique. And, you know, but London for me was a blast. I mean, London, I, I, I like the history. I like the people. I like the humor. Uh, you know, it is a funny place. And they like, you know, there's a kind of fine balance between so conservative and then also this like weird obsession and appreciation with the bizarre and eccentric. Yeah. And it kind of filled all these kind of Charles Dickian fantasy that I had or Edwardian ideas. And I met amazing people there by chance. Uh, so then how? I met Anita Pallenberg my second wow. day in London. Really? Who said, come to a party with me. And that was who took me under her wing. And then I met this other incredible woman, uh, my two best friends, girls named Poppy and Daisy DeVilnov. Yeah, I know. Like that. in my first week. And then I met their mom, who had this deep history. So then, what we have to remember is there's no internet at this time. So it's not like you could just Google 60s fashion and find it. So that was like the introduction to Ozzy Clark, which just at that time, you know, was not a thing yet. You know, it was like the throwaway vintage pieces. 
And uh, yeah, I entered the London world and touched in, you know, it's when I met Jefferson Hack when he, you know, was fully there. So I got kind of West London, East London, and I never thought I would leave. I really wanted and to then work. what happened? Well, I was in my second year at St. Martin's and press had started. A piece of mine, I came back and a, a piece of mine got worn to a party. And a few days later, in like a piece that you a dress I made, a dress I was making as a muslin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my second year in London, Naomi Campbell saw a dress of mine, and tracked it down, and said, "I want it." So she starts. She came, and I'll never forget it. Her legs walking down. I was living in a basement flat in Bloomsbury. It's really cute. The look of it outside, not inside, and kind of wet and cold. Probably haunted. Uh, and, uh, you know, this bag with NC came down, she had her perfume, she had her Mandela book with her, and she was so gracious, like incredible. I mean, I was just a kid, and she was kind of teaching me her tricks of fitting. And, uh, you know, she has become a very big supporter and friend and, and very instrumental into my success. So she saw that, and then a, I, a muslin, like a mock-up piece that I had done for a project, I think it was a t-shirt project. And I said, I'm not making a t-shirt, I'm making a dress, and this is why I'm making a dress. And I think they failed me. They were really annoyed about it. And uh, you know, they weren't into the idea of just pretty. Like that really freaked them out, right? They were trying to push edge, which I probably would have loved to have developed more. Uh, I made this dress and a girlfriend wore it to a Christmas party. And uh, from there, a few days later, the New York Times called. We were at home on the house line having dinner with my parents, and they said, we want to write a story about this dress. So is that dress and that article launched you into kind of? It started the press. It said, wow. a star is born. Wow. It was a three-page article in the fashion of the times, the predecessor to now what is T Magazine. And you know, just and you went, were like 18 years old. Yeah, really young. Really young, 19, 18, 19. And then from there, then the Telegraph did a piece. And then it was really hard to go back to school because the other students were just furious, like really not happy. And at that point, I think Louise Wilson protectively picked me out and said, you're just going to do fittings for the, for the master students. So you're going to do all the fittings for me. And so we had this rapport where she would ask what I thought, which was kind of cool, and you know, make me model and all the shows for them. And, uh, and then retailers started to get interested. Julie Gilhart at Barney's was the first person to call, and she flew to London to come see what I was doing. And it was like one of a kind pieces, very deconstructed. Uh, and, uh, you know, she then, you know, there was nothing to buy. It was like in my living room. Like I but put on an experimental, like theatrical, weird show in a basement and did you, for her. How did that feel? So, like in the last two minutes, you've mentioned. Jefferson Hack, Naomi Campbell, Louise Wilson, and Julie Gilhart, and all of these people, you meet them at the age of 18, and like, how did that feel? I, we're like, well, I wasn't like aware of the world of fashion. Right. So it wasn't... The importance of it hadn't really... It hadn't hit, and I mean, I think I can say that much further into my career, into places and people probably that I even made real mistakes with later, or in, in interacting, but it seemed pretty normal uh, at the time, and uh, you know, 
it was like Jefferson was a guy, you know, who had an indie magazine. I don't, you know, I think, I, but for people were, you know. People in the know, it was, it was a big deal and it started to create buzz. Um, I remember I was the last person la- let into the famous, the now very famous glass box of St. Asylum Alexander McQueen show. Wow. And I waited and waited and everybody went in, I, you know, it was across the river. It was cold or whatever. It was just strange. I believe Plum Sykes was working the door, and finally, at the last minute, I was like the last person allowed in. They said, "Okay, you can." There's room for like one more in standing, and it was such an incredible experience. It was just a special time in London to be there. But then you were drawn back here to New York because I was. I had a retailer, a store. There's a boutique in New York called Baguda that used to be in Soho, who collected and sold clothes. Great eye. Uh, and he wanted to business partner with me. He said, I want to buy half your company. I'll be in Europe. What do you think? Come do a buying trip with me. So I went on a buying trip with him, which was very informative to go to all the showrooms. And also then I was able to meet all the great independent boutique retailers of Europe. And I had wanted to intern at uh, Dior. I made a box to send to John. And they wouldn't send it at Galliano. Yeah, for Galliano, because you have to apply for the internships. I made this very, you know, box covered in collage of inspiration, and I don't know what else in it that opened boxes within boxes. And they wouldn't, they said, we have to hold these work experiences because there's fewer jobs and our seniors need to get them. Or they didn't think I was ready, which maybe they didn't. So I came back after that trip, and, you know, he kind of, this, guy Mark Baguda put a contract together and it was too scary and, and it wasn't enough money to really launch a line but there was sort of the buzz had continued and crossed over the pond and slowly by slowly uh, a junior buyer from Henry Bendel's came then uh, you know a little bit above that person came and then finally there was like the big meeting with the president I put on this impromptu fashion show that is in the movie and I then, 9-11 happened, I thought, what are we doing making dresses? Fashion, like, you know, and I kind of, something hit me really strongly, I thought, New York needs me. Like, I felt like we need to infuse some energy, and I remember the night before, it was like my first New York fashion week trying to get into a party, you know, but I really didn't know anybody back in New York, I knew the models. So the models kind of, Karen Nelson had been a big supporter and, and that British crew, but most of the Brit models had gone back to London, but Karen was still working and still does. Uh, and I remember the Marc Jacobs, he did like, I think a huge fragrance launch. I remember going and I remember waking up hearing the planes. Oh, wow. And it just, you know, it felt, I thought, what are we doing? And at that point, Henry Bendels still said, well, we want to buy this collection. And I said, well, I can't reproduce these, but give me a month. I'm going to sketch you a collection. And so 9-11 happened. We thought they will never be interested again. And they were. And at that point, what's not in the movie, and you know, because I think it's too detailed, but I think it's interesting, which was that there was uh, a venture capital company that had come into fashion called Pegasus. I remember Pegasus. And uh, Pegasus had invested in kind of a friend of mine, Miguel Adrover. And uh, they built the most beautiful, largest studio I've still ever seen to date in New York City. I mean, a whole building on the Lower East Side, like near the Bowery, if not on the Bowery. That was just like incredible. 
and they were liquidating it. And that's how I got, mm, they brought the head, of, you know, the head of production or a friend or the fit model and Muse of Miguel was somebody that I had met and you know, they said we have to get rid of this stuff like fast. And that's how I bought my first sewing machines and got my first sample maker and my first production manager and people were willing uh, to work for free on, on, you know, there were no jobs, like production had stopped. We were able to produce our first collection because there had been a pull in the factories of Ralph's production. And that gave a window for all these people to take a risk. Sure. So it was kind of interesting out of something very trying and mm -hmm. tragic and changing that it did give me this little window of an opportunity to start and then I presented in Gen Art and I met uh, Cal Ruttenstein and Cal, who I was so scared of at the time, like that face for some reason I like knew from fashion. That was a face or a personality that I was like aware of and I remember hiding like behind a door when he came in to look at the collection because you know right off the bat it was started to be all these big retailers coming to my parents were in my living room like inspecting the clothing, it started to get really, you started to feel it getting serious and heating up. And then uh, kind of this idea of young designers got put together in this buzz and the Echo Damani Prize that was put together. And I think it was Sally Singer and Julie Gilhart at the time. Julie Gilhart came back and like, why I missed it? I missed a season of a collection. I was the first. They said, well, we tried to call you, but Right. I don't know where you were for the rest of the summer. Right. So anyhow, so I started that and then we embarked after 9-11 on the first fall February fashion week. I say we built that moment on Aaron interns, people that came from other disciplines that were interested in getting into fashion. I mean, you know, people self-question what they do on a daily basis in tragedy. Mm -hmm. And it came back and we were doing something exciting and the buzz was building. And we were kind of winging it as we went. One of my very yeah. first fashion shows. I remember this. It was in the tents though, right? Yeah, I snuck into that show. That's amazing, that's impressive to get past layers, KCD, which is a big PR company. The layers of security to get into your show. And I remember getting, this was like before BOF even existed. It was like one of my. That's amazing. But I just remember. From backstage? No, I came in through a side door. Amazing. And there was another door and then. I mean, I mean, it had gone to a place that was really... It was quick. Getting into your show was like the hottest show of New York Fashion Week in yeah. the tents. Everybody was there. You, you know, yeah. P. Diddy was there yeah. and Claire Danes was there. And like, it was a thing. Well, I was really attuned to the... I mean, pretty quickly, there were two things that I was attuned to. I was attuned that the show, that the fashion show itself was going to need to become a kind of form of media. And that was kind of a project between myself, uh, Anna at the time, uh, and a guy who ran IMG in the tens, a man named Chuck Bennett. And I don't think I was even really aware of what we were building, but I certainly uh, you know, was, was in the middle of it and the swing and in the building of this as, as fat, making Fashion Week an entity, sponsors, crazy production, uh, and it was big. And at that point, I had gotten investment uh, from Buffy, from Diddy. You know, before we were in the tents, I had met him on a red carpet. Probably, I don't even remember what. Maybe my first Met Gala as a designer, and I asked him to do the music for my show. Wow. And he came to the studio, 
and it took about six months of courting. And at that point, I had met with some of the luxury houses and been offered crazy jobs way too young. I mean, I flew to Italy for Versace. I mean, I was like 22. It's like, went to Paris, uh, you know, to meet with the amazing powers that be to interview for Givenchy and do the project for them and pre-Ricardo. Conchetta Lancio. Exactly, you got it. Conchetta days, uh, bringing me there, and then with Sydney going to talk about Donna Karen. I mean, it was just crazy. I was way too young for I think I would have been like swallowed, and and my ego probably at that point because it was so big, you know, was kind of empowered. It was kind of empowered. And Do you think the industry was indulging your ego? Oh, for sure, absolutely. The I think the industry. Uh, I think there needs to be more, more, it was just fast, you know, I, I think it was fast, it was grandiose, my second big show, and Tom Ford came on board, and Tom underwrote the entire show, and I never wow. met him, I had to sign a non-compete to the Gucci group. So this is a it lot, It was just a right? whole, I mean, I was still this 21, is crazy. This it was, is crazy, it was right? a busy like, year. This is like one of those, it, it was a like ride, storied rise. To, to kind of the American fame. story. We love to, to rise and then get our rifles out. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, Swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? 
For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. So when, when did you know things had, like did you realize things were starting to go off the rails? Like when did you? Well, I think this got all hyped. And I think that then I started realizing really quickly that a lot of people that were in fashion were in it to live a lifestyle right, the live the luxury lifestyle. And it's, you know, I think there were misconceptions that I was really from this world, and I'm really not. And so it was like, okay, well, the opportunities are there, let's, let's live it. And I fully, beyond, you know, with Puffy, I was on planes and yachts and doing shows, and, you know, it was an amazing experience. It's a long way from St. Martin's. It was a long way from, yeah. Right. From, from, from being a student and doing fittings with Louise Wilson. But within like, you know, less like a year period. Yeah. But did you know something was going wrong? Did I know everything was great? And then what happened? And then what happened? Well, I mean, if I fast forward, you know, uh, how would I say, where do I feel like I started to feel the, the strain, strangeness or tension? Well, I think first the pull creatively within me. You know, the business had grown to pretty fast, amazing, place and uh, you know we were still the money was still being invested into the business in you know pretty healthy way I wouldn't say in an extreme way um, the CFDA Vogue Fashion Fund was something that you know was kind of created for people in my need in my position at that time and you know I don't live with regrets but I did at the day before the announcement pulled myself out of it because I didn't feel ethical if I had it, I just signed an investor. And that put me in a hard position because I wasn't, I didn't have the investment to become an advertiser, but I was then no longer being able to have the support of the industry. Right. So that's kind of was the beginning of feeling like something strange was happening. There was definitely a, a kind of weird slowdown. Uh, where do I think I felt like things got weird? Well, we lived through 2008. And then I would say, you know, and at that point, you know, we had, I think we had mismatch management. I think expectations upon myself, stresses of family, expectations just got really intense. And I think that, uh, you know, where was the hard time? The hard time, I mean, there's so many challenges in it, but I could see the reviews changing starting there. At the time when the reviews changed, the clothing started selling more. And then it became this whole thing that like reviews and fashion versus what sells in a store are like completely opposite always. Like you'd have your best reviewed show and it'd be your worst selling collection and then the collections where they were so-so or bad reviews would be like the retail hits. It was confusing. Uh, and I think that there was always a pull, you know, I think that from a PR side, my, you know, they really wanted, you know, there's this thing of American sportswear and fashion. And I wanted to be really theatrical. And it was always this pull. 
with different collaborators and stylists and teams. It was just enormous. And those shows were big. So where do I think? I mean, I think when it was, you know, do you close or Did do you not? Did it reach that point? Oh, yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, I totally took a crazy risk and said, you know, we lost our time slot. I mean, that's when we knew there was something really wrong. That was it. Was it Wednesday? Your time slot. We were the Thursday. Third, we were the last. We were the second. We were the last night show of Fashion Week for a long time. And then you lost that slot. They and they. We lost that slot. And then for a year, we did this 9 a.m. Monday morning slot before the 10:30 Carolina Herrera show. It was just a killer. It was a 4 a.m. 5 a.m. call time. I like will never forget seeing like it's a death wish. Poor Stefan Murray's face at like five in the morning doing eyeliner. I right. mean, I think he's created a lot more magic than that in his career to see that. It was hard. And you know, what we wanted to make in terms of clothing was confusing. The whole thing was I had Mark Ronson DJing at nine thirty in the morning in a weird space. It was just strange and hard and it just didn't feel right. And I, you know, New York style was fashion, street style was happening. Like fashion in New York had moved on. And I didn't know where my place in there was. And, you know, I did this and, and DDA Grumbach had been to my studio a few times and, you know, he said, you know, come, you know, join us. And we thought at that point, like, what do I have to lose here? And it wasn't like approved. There was no budget for it. It was pretty scary. To show in Paris. To show in Paris. That was pretty ballsy. It was pretty ballsy. I mean, I didn't think that, you know, fast forward six years from then, like, all of my contemporary American designers would be doing the same. Many um, of them are coming back. And now they're coming back, which I, you know, when you I... You lived through that before. I lived through it before. I think I took some punches in ways, you know, I wasn't protected either. We were also separating from KCD at the time and they were really hurt. You know, I, I know that, you know, I think it was something of like, you know, where we didn't understand each other at the time. They wanted something, we didn't grown big enough yet. And it just didn't, it wasn't a healthy. So was that the low point when you showed in Paris and then you had to go back yeah, the low with your tail I mean, between I'll... your legs? Yeah, or the low point was the emptiness of showing in Paris, not having a support team, being fractured from your family, being fractured from your community of fashion. I mean, the people that supported me in that moment were the models. Models supported me. They did my shows in those crazy times. I lost my whole team. Like, it was a fully fractured business, and my business partner, uh, you know, had a real tough conversation with me, not Puffy, a man named Ron Burkle. And uh, you know, he really, it was really important for him that I learned my business at that point, like responsibility time for whatever I was going to do. Uh, and it was scary. It was like a sink or drown situation. And you have to figure out how to get out of that. How did you, well, so going through all of this after like the rise I, to superstar, I'm like, how did you muster the courage to keep going? Well, I didn't have a choice. Like, Why? I mean, because I needed... You could have quit. Well, I needed to get a... I would have had to have gotten a job. Um, so you could never have worked for someone else. I could have at that point, but I don't think I would have been desired to. Right? It would have been, like, uh, a problem case. Right. Problem child or something. And, uh, yeah, I think that... I, I think I had a lot of responsibility for the people that did work for me in my sample room. Right. Like, that was, you know, and... and um, 
yeah, I could have thrown in the towel. I mean, there were discussions of icing the company, coming back. And, uh, you know, I started carefully assembling a new team. And, you know, we embarked on a comeback. And this is where the film comes in. Yeah. Which, um, the film basically, and for those of you listening who haven't seen it, I highly recommend you see it because it's one of the most honest portrayals of fashion that I've seen. Thank you. Um, I think I, that, you know, that was really important in the making of House of State. But why did you decide to do the, like, you've just been through all this terrible We'd gotten time. just through it. Why We'd would, gotten through it. Yeah. Why we, would you want to tell that well, story Well, I was on so TV publicly. at the time. So I was on Project Runway. I got, got you know, came back and then pro- I went on Project Runway, which I did for six years. And, uh, you know, I realized people were fascinated with creative process. It's also the beginning of, of Instagram. I just knew people were like, as technology, I was hearing technology, 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 fast fashion, sportswear, athleisure, it was like all building. And I was like, well, people seem to be really into the process of how stuff is made. I mean, I was on a reality TV show that paints a picture of fashion. And, uh, and at the same time, like seeing that people were really interested in like this artisanal way of how we made the clothing and a woman came into my office for a small mini documentary for Canadian TV for Canadian TV yeah for Rogers communication Mm -hmm. I had agreed to do a charity with Suzanne Rogers and part of this with Suzanne is that she produces a mini doc for their channel on the making of the collection and the charity and this woman walked in and I don't know, I had an instinct. I said, I think you have a feature film in you. I just felt it. I said, I think you have a film in you. Have you ever made a feature film? Well, I've made these short things. I haven't made a feature film. So short filming. And I think I kind of pieced it. I think she thought I was probably like, I don't know, having a lot of, I don't know, like selling her some idea. She didn't believe me that there was a real story there. And she interviewed my sister. And my sister said something in an interview that she didn't bring back to me till later. Sandy, the filmmaker, who became, you know, who ended up building this film as the director, um, you know, where my sister said something like, "Remember, this is a family story too." And the family pays such a. And I never had that discussion with my family. Like, we're yeah. making a movie about our family. Well, the family pays such a big role in the film, yeah. and obviously had a huge part to play in the business. Um, I think the, the the family element is what turns it into... I mean, of course, there was the whole story about the creative process and that, yeah. that dress. But a family but movie really something the, bigger, a bigger, deeper story than like the it, making of a collection. Which, yeah, it made it something that everyone could relate to. I mean, that's important when you make a film. An entity in itself, like mm-hmm. what was really clear, she, Sandy, once it kind of transformed and Suzanne let it say, okay, we're not gonna, we're gonna hold this, even though we filmed everything, like the fashion show in Toronto, the whole thing. And it got held, and third-party producers came in. Um, I kind of wanted to let it happen. I wanted to see the making of a film. I kind of wanted to enjoy that, but I was not allowed to be a producer. And Sandy, who kind of you know has a real serious journalistic background, which I wasn't even aware of, and as I you know she kind of said, and you can't have any say in Final Cut, and I gave that right away. I have an amazing entertainment team, but I gave that right away. So I couldn't control storyline. 
she was pretty much an investigative reporter and like I know way too much about so many people and what they thought or said than I should. Uh, and then in the filmmaking process was actually reflective and healing because it started to give me perspective on how much my sister was still hurting. And in the process of making that was an actual healing process with my family and sister. And you know, even if the film had never been released, just that experience, uh, although incredibly risky, was was what I like take away from form it. of therapy. It was a form of therapy. We had these like things. We would have these interviews together. And I remember afterwards, the camera's crew left, and we were like all cooking dinner together. And I, you know, I was like so happy they didn't get this moment on camera. And I really had to acknowledge uh, the pain that I had caused, uh, and acknowledge it, and kind of put aside any issues that I had because it wasn't about that. And I mean, that takes a level of maturity and growth and, and, a, and a kind of perspective on, on an industry. But it was hard because there were so many different storylines. I didn't know what stories she was going to tell. You know, there was the storyline with all, you know, people in, you know, powers that be that were doing behind the scenes scary manipulative things. I mean, it's like an episode of Scandal. But yeah. I was learning, and I, I mean, was like, you once I was like said, this story is crazy. You once said fashion has a dark side. Mm -hmm. Not all runways, lipstick, and fishtail gowns. Well, I mean, it's true. There is a dark side to fashion. I mean, it is an industry that does have, uh, you know, a lot of manipulation. Media does have that manipulative side. I mean, I don't believe in fake news. But, I mean, I think at the time I felt that way. Yeah. Before that was the catchphrase. I mean, I had that the sense that be. I mean, when my president of my company started, there would be news stories of me like doing crazy stuff out, and we'd be like, "Well, we were here at the studio all day last night." It was just being created, and uh, you know, I think I'm lucky that I still have my business. I certainly worked hard for it, but I, even though there were powers at play that just wanted us shut out. And I, you know, I take responsibility for that. I mean, some. Do you think you got seduced by the luster of this industry? Absolutely. Yeah. It was the it was the poisoned apple, for sure. I mean, it wasn't why I got into it, but once I was into it, um, the idea of the luster and fabulosity, and 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 the opportunities, uh, were were. Yeah, I was caught up in it. I don't think I ever took it for granted. Parts of it I certainly did, like production or samples or let's do all those pieces in crocodile. You know, like whims of fancy that you could have or we knew that fabric shipped around the world tomorrow. And I think parts of the industry still work in this process. Yeah. And I think it's kind of wasteful in some capacity and can be silly, but I'm glad that I, I had to take these hits to become a more humble person, become a better creator, uh, a smarter business person, and a better leader and collaborator. Because this yeah. is a collaborative industry. We are so fortunate to have an industry that balances art and commerce. Yeah. I mean, there aren't other... The business of fashion. The business of fashion. Yeah. And, and learn my business of fashion hands-on, on yeah. the road. I had to you know, watch my cash flow every day 
uh, you know, watch the checks, you know, understand, understand my line sheets. Yeah. Like I'd sat in a lot of board meetings with my company where I kind of understood principles, but then I had to like actually be tested on them and figure it out. And uh, you know, over that period of time, we went from really being underwater to carefully, slowly, against all odds, against major pushback from our retailers, rebuild and prove it to them. But you're doing things, you know, we just took a walk yeah. through the showroom here and you're doing things completely differently now. Like what would you say is the biggest change for the way you run the business now versus how it was run before? Well, before it was fully obsessed with the fashion show. I mean, everything revolved around these fashion show seasons and the building of the runway show and everything kind of came off of that. Now we're focused on our customer, their needs, our partners, and our product. And I will do whatever it takes, sometimes selflessly, to support that. Right. I mean, I think, and I think collaboration. I mean, I don't know, I think that's key, a kind of growing up of a respect of the process uh, and, and understanding that balance. You know, before it was all about the creative product and the vision of it. Well, the vision's great, but if that vision doesn't have an end purpose, and what's, what's it point? for? Yeah. It's dis and it's disposable. So, I mean, having the choice of not doing runway shows, you know, I remember when, if, if that had, whenever you used to hear or somebody wasn't doing a show, you'd think, oh, they're going out of business. Well, not doing a show, you know, has allowed me to create collateral that I'll be able to use in a book one day instead of a runway image, which isn't that interesting for me for a book, like right. a runway shot. But now I can have all these different, I invest in that. It's great for digital. I can tell a deeper story about a brand. And I finish my collection early. We deliver early. And I can see that direct sell-through. And from that direct sell-through, I can increase my buys each season. And your business is growing. And our business is growing. We're and profitable today. We, we fund ourselves as a business. Uh, I'm able to employ 60 people. I'm really proud of that. Um, you know, it ain't easy. It ain't easy, kids. Uh, I do a lot of, I wear a lot of hats. I, I did the Delta uniforms. I worked for Brooks Brothers Women's. And uh, you have two in-house collections. I have two in-house collections, multiple licensing. Um, all of it takes different nuances and work. You know, I did runway, Project Runway for six years. I'm now looking at three other media projects. I mean, when I look to the future, in fashion today, as a kind of craftsman uh, rooted in that, um, you know, I, I think real luxury, because now it's so saturated, kind of has to go back to this idea of rarity. Like luxury used to be exoticism, something you'd have to pull from a place, then it became material, then it became label, and now it's like everywhere. And so real, and the, and the real luxury consumer is becoming this connoisseur that does want one of a kind, wants rare, and, if they'll, and, they, and they'll probably pay for that. Right. And I think that a brand today, kind of we're gonna become content providers. I think we're gonna, brands will be producing, there will be a Chanel channel in the future. There kind of already is, have you seen Chanel news? It's pretty cool, but yeah. now I wanna see like what Chanel reality TV is and yeah. what Chanel, 
scripted television is, or whatever, scripted film. Yeah, it is. It's happening. And there's like Chanel YouTube channels and Chanel yeah. Instagram channels. It or it's already that's and they've gone, fashion has become. It's media. becoming that yeah. for sure. I call it fashiontainment. Yeah. And I think that like the publications in some way are trying to become brands. Yeah. So it's really interesting. I'm watching what's happening right now. Um, but I kind of, you know, I stopped kind of believing a lot of the hype and BS that gets thrown in our industry. Yeah. Uh, as, as, and, it, and it thrives on it, but I kind of was like stayed in my own lane and focused. And I think I also had a lot of disgruntled issues with the industry, and I'm so at ease with it now, and with other designers uh, and everything. Like, we're all in a community. It's like, not that it shouldn't be anything more than it is. Yeah. I'm community, competitive still. Community and competition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Of course, but mutual respect. Yeah. I mean, it is a, it is a survival business, but... Uh, and it's exciting to be in something that's changing and to be able to take smart risks as you do it and try different ways of doing it because I think what I've learned is there's no formula. There really isn't. There's no calculated formula to what makes something a success besides obviously something that sells, but uh, there's so many kind of parts of the algorithm that can go, the human parts that you can't control like weather. Yeah. So. You know, it's, a, it's an exciting, fun time. I think that I wanted to make House of Z because I wanted to have, I allowed it to happen because I really, first of all, I said, if we're doing this, this has to be an honest film. Like I said, I, I can't watch another puffy, fluffy advertorial. I'm not interested in you guys making an advertorial film and it can't be the making and trials and tribulations of getting this on the runway. I've seen a lot of those, and they're fine, but it wasn't, I was like, I don't want to add waste or space if it's not going to be done What well. was your reaction when you first watched it? I was so scared. Um, cringy. It's scary to watch yourself. It's one thing to, I'm okay, like I was okay and used to seeing myself on the TV screen, but like in a screen room and- Well, and the TV screen thing is this whole like false reality thing that's created. You're playing a character. In a, yeah. You are so vulnerable in this film. Well, she allowed it to happen. Yeah. She created it. I mean, I was let myself be manipulated and there was probably, there was hundreds of hours of performance footage in this, in this moment too, but, but she, she knew when to get me. Yeah. I mean, it was three over three years, so she kind of knew when to like when Zach is exhausted to go there with him, and she she was really calculated in how to build it and get what she needed. So when you watched it, you were really scared before, and then after you saw it, how did you feel? A huge. Well, uh, I got excited. I was really excited because even getting a film out is like a battle. It is hard. Yeah. You know, it was postponed a year. Uh, you know, an at one point an alternative storyline that I kind of had to break down to say like that's not the reality, this is not fact, uh, that didn't happen. So, you know, finally it came out and uh, it was a huge relief. I mean, it took me till it premiered at Tribeca. Uh, I mean, even I, even when I saw it, I was still nervous about it, and then when it opened Tribeca in the huge theater and it was an amazing you know premiere a lot of people came out to support and full house 
you know, I kind of leaned into my seat deep, my mom and I like gripping each other's hand. Uh, I had Andre Leontali there, who's kind of a fashion angel, and, uh, you know, and the response was big, and then I felt relieved, and then it was like go time. Wow. And then it was like, let's launch this movie. Yeah. And that, you know, for, for about a year, you know, traveling and wanting to support the filmmaker because she had committed a large part of her life in juggling yeah. that while producing a morning TV show every day in Canada and put her job on the risk to make it because she had to commit to time. And, and she, you know, you have to fight to get any piece of art or, or project made. But at that point, I just wanted it to be seen by young people ambitious, creative people. Anybody that wants to create and live or works with their family. I don't know. I mean, I thought at the end, I wanted people to take away, like, there are really more important things, you know, than obviously what we do, we love and it's important. But really, at the end of the day, you know, your uh, relationship with your family is family can be so important and that's yeah. what came through and I feel very fortunate that I have a good relationship with my family and I thought you know to show this kind of American story which is you know they love to to celebrate and then kind of eat eat their young and if you can survive you well, know you did make more you than, stronger person you did more than okay. survive you've thrived oh, thanks and the movie is excellent thanks and Thanks for talking to me. Yeah, about thank it. you for having me. I it's, don't know if I uh, talked your head off, but no, it was. I think that's I read. I read. You know your site every day, and it's a real uh, pleasure to have somebody so uh, passionate about tracking. You know our very exciting industry. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, sitting in front of a painting of <laughs> catacombs. Next to Dahlia's. Next to Dahlia's. In a with floor. a photo shoot going on with next door. Shoot. It's very fashion. Very fashion. Very New York. Well, thank yeah. you, Zach. Thank you. And thanks to all of you. And tune in next week. There's always more Inside Fashion. If you've made it this far, that means you've listened to this entire podcast. And it makes me think you might be interested in knowing more about BOF Professional. Our global membership community from the Business of Fashion, which keeps you up to date with everything you need to know about the global fashion industry. For a limited time, we are offering BOF podcast listeners an exclusive 25% discount on an annual BOF professional membership. For more details, click on the episode notes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns.